it seems to me that um, just about the time everything kind of starts to come together. You got a plan. You know how it is. Just like everything just starts clicking. You've worked hard. You got everything lined up. Just about the time that happens, it seems like the wheels run off. It just seems like that's the way it is for me. Maybe, maybe it's just my bad luck or so. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like that's the way it is. You know how it is like when you're, you're on your way to church and you're feeling spiritual, you're feeling good. About that time, some bad driver does something stupid on the way. Y'all don't know anything about that. Uh, or maybe you had a fight with that person that you're riding with. <laughs> That'll do it too. Um, or, or uh, this happened to Vanessa yesterday. I'm telling on her. Um, she had a really good day. You know what, what a good day for Vanessa is? When nobody else in the world is with her. She is by herself. That was a good, she had a good day all by herself. And then we showed up. <laughs> Uh, I, I sort of joke, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, you've had a good day at work or doing whatever you're doing, and then that, that other person or somebody else in your family, they come along, and then they say something that's ruin everything. <laughs> that, that, that idea of, you know, just everything kind of locking in, and then, boom, it just seems like everything's falling apart. I think that's exactly what's happening here in Luke chapter 22. You will know this incident in the life or the ministry of Jesus as the Last Supper, you might know it as that, or the Passover Supper, that's what's going on here. But, but you've got, at this moment, all of human history, I mean, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that, all of human history is in the balance. Everything is coming to, you literally could take all of human history and say, before this happens and after this happens, this is the culminating point. When Jesus is about to be on the cross. And at that moment, the devil shows up in a big way. And I want you to see this. Let me give you some context just to remind you. So over in chapter 19, we see Jesus entering into the Jerusalem on that, on that, on that donkey. He's a conquering king. That's what he's doing. He comes in at the end of chapter 19 and he cleans out the temple. He's saying, your practices are bad. Your doctrine is bad. Everything you're doing is wrong. And you know what he does? He sets up himself at the temple and he starts teaching. He's basically saying, y'all been doing it wrong. Let me show you how it's done. That's what he does. And then in chapter 20, of course, the religious leaders come in and they say, we don't like this. And he tells them, I know you don't like this because you're only out for yourself. You're only looking out for what you want. You're not doing what God has ordained you to do. And then in chapter 21, he says, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And yet, even in spite of all that, there are big crowds showing up. I ask you to go to chapter 22. Go to verse, chapter 21, verse 38, the very last verse of the, the previous chapter. He says, and all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Jesus is drawing huge crowds at this point. People are listening to what he's saying. And, and he's, not, he's not pulling punches. He's not sugarcoating it. He's saying it exactly the way it needs to be said. And people want to hear this. They're listening to it. And of course, if you go down to verse 2 of chapter 22, the chief priests and scribes, these are the religious leaders, sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Just about the time that everything seems like it's going good here, they don't like this. And that makes them want to 
kill Jesus even more. They'd already been plotting against him, but now they really want to kill him. But it says they fear the people. They don't know how they're going to do it without upsetting everybody. So now it's time for something to happen. And it happens to be, you already see it in verse 1, it's the Passover. And there's a Passover feast that would have been celebrated. In fact, I won't read it, but in verses 7 through 20, I won't read all those verses. But this is what Jesus has his disciples put together, is a Passover feast. He asks them to go to a certain place. He gives them all the instructions in those, first, in those verses I mentioned there. And he says, at this time, if you go down to verse 15, Luke 22, verse 15, he says to the disciples, he says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I read that to you because Jesus knew exactly what's about to happen. He's not, he's not mistaken. He's not, he's not confused. He knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows he's about to suffer. He knows that his time is near, that he is going to be on the cross. In fact, he makes this supper, which is, this has been going on for thousands of years up to this point for the Jewish people. They've been celebrating this for thousands of years. But he says this supper, this, this Passover supper, he makes it about himself. Look at what he says here in, um, in verse 19. And he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, now do understand, this is not a new meal. This is something they've been doing as Jewish people for a long time. And he says, this bread that we're eating, that's my body. It's for you. He goes on and says in verse 20, likewise also the cup after supper saying, this is this cup. And so he's, he's speaking of wine, this, this, grape, this grape juice that's in there, this is wine. He says, this is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. He says, this drink that we drink, this bread that we eat, that's talking about me. That's what he's saying. He's saying this Passover is prefiguring the perfect lamb, the perfect lamb that would be killed, whose blood would be shed to save the people from their sin. That's what he's saying in this. He's saying, I have come to fix everything. Now, that's the time that the devil shows up. That's what happens. In fact, you see, he, even, he says right after this, it's verse 20, he was talking about his blood in this cup, but in verse 21, he switches gears and he says, but behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with, is with me on the table. He says, I know that you are my disciples, you're sitting around the table, but there's somebody at this table that's gonna betray me. He acknowledged that there was a betrayer in the midst. But do you know who this betrayer was? I skipped over it. Go back to verse two, excuse me, verse three of chapter 22. Can you skip back there? Look at this. Look at what he says. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being one of the number of the 12. You know who's at that table? A man named Judas. Do you know what that man is doing? Exactly what the devil wants him to do. He is driven. He's motivated by the devil. In verses four through six, you see that he goes then to the chief priests. He goes to the enemies of, of Jesus to collaborate with them to figure out how they can figure out how to, how to get Jesus uh, on trial, how they can catch him, how they can get a hold of him so they can kill him. But don't miss this. They're sitting at the table and Jesus says, you're my friends. 
You're my people. We've been together for a long time. One of y'all is going to betray me. So the satanic scheme is afoot. It's abounding. It's happening at this point. And it's the last person, the last people you'd ever expect. In fact, in verse 23, they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. They're literally saying, I'm not going to do that. Are you going to do that? Are you going to? No, it's not me. It must be you. No, it's not me. Why would you think it's me? They don't, they don't suspect any of them. They don't know who to think about this. And what I want you to hear about that is that Satan continues to put well-intended schemes. Do understand that Judas, I don't think he's sitting there saying, Jesus is a terrible dude. I hate him. No. You know what Judas is doing? He's picking a side. He thinks, I'm going to pick the side that wins. So in his mind, it's, it's logical. It makes a lot of sense. But you know what the devil does? He plants those kind of well-intended schemes in our heads so that he makes men and women that are, can I just put it to you this way, that look like they're God's people, that look like they're Christian folk. He puts in those people's minds, he puts in them these schemes to make them his pawns. Let me pause here a moment and make this point. I want to be very clear for, for theological reasons. The devil can't do, make you do nothing if you're one of God's people. I want you to know that, first of all. That's very important for you to hear. But I will also tell you, and I'm speaking of no one particular person in this room because I don't know your hearts, but I have been in churches before where the last person you would think would do things that are clearly the devil's bidding is actively doing it. And I will tell you as much as my judgment means anything, and let me tell you, it means that much, just so you know. As much as my judgment means anything, the person I have in my mind right now, I believe was not a Christian person, was not a saved person. He was responding to what the devil directed him to do. And let me just tell you that I, I want it to sink in the reality, the severity of what I'm talking about. It can happen anywhere, among anywhere that God is, God is praised, God's people gather. Those kinds of people will get in and the devil will put schemes in their mind. We have to be careful not to be those people. Continue on that there's also strife that enters into these people. Look at verse 24. Right after they've been talking about the betrayal, there's this strife that shows up. And there was also strife among them. This is among the disciples. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? <laughs> I find this humorous, but at the same time humbling. Because I think I could see myself having the same conversation that these men were having. And by the way, this was not a new conversation for the disciples. It's been ongoing. There were other times they had had this. If you go back to uh, two parallel passages, Matthew chapter 20 and uh, Mark chapter 10, they're at a different time, but those two passages tell about an incident where I think it's one of the, the James and John, their daddy comes to Jesus and says, would you make my sons the greatest, you know, put it your right hand, one at your left hand. So this is not a new conversation. They've already been debating this. We want to have a position of importance. We want to do important things. And, and I want to give them a little bit of a pass in that it's a bit of a natural tendency. Somebody's got to lead, right? You can't have, you know, <laughs> leaderless situations. You want somebody to be in charge. And I, for my money, if we're going to have somebody in charge, I'd like to have Somebody that knows what they're doing and, you know, and of course I know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing, but I know what I'm doing. You know, that's how we always think, right? But it's driven by, and Jesus points this out in verse 25, 
It's driven by a worldly impulse. Look what he says. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. He says, listen, this is what the world's way of doing business is. To put somebody up that's going to be the leader, and he, of course, the benefactor. He's a good guy, right? He's going to do it for your good, even though it says there that they exercise, or rather they exercise lordship over them. They're going to to tell them what to do. They're going to tell them which way to go. They're going to tell them how high to jump. They're going to tell them everything, but they're doing it for their good. That's how they do it. The world does it. But he goes on to say, but ye shall not so be, or be so, ye shall not be so. So that's not how it's supposed to work, to have holding things over people, to, to have a power dynamic where you're the most powerful person. That's not how God's kingdom works, he says. And what Satan is doing here, I believe in this case, is he's continuing to push, and he does it today, he continues to push the world's agenda on the church, on God's people. He tries to make pastors to be CEOs of churches. By the way, that's not what the pastor is supposed to be. He is not the big boss man, the CEO. That is not the goal of a pastor. He tries to make the members customers, make sure they all get what they want. That's not what the members are to do. He tries to make the community shareholders in this this company that we have. That's not what we are. That's not what we do. This is a natural thing that Satan is constantly pushing to make us reflect the world. That's what he's trying to do. And then in verse 31, we skip all the way down. Jesus pulls over us to the side. He pulls Simon or Peter. You may know him as Peter, but he calls him Simon here. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan's starting to sift here. He's sifting, and if you know what sifting is, it's about separating wheat from chaff from, uh, from, the, from the, the, the grains. And it's really the emphasis here is about the separation. And also I wanna make sure you understand this. We're reading out of a King James version. That's what we're reading out of. And one of the benefits of a King James is it helps us understand plural versus singular. He look here what he says here. He says, hath desired to have you And then he goes down to verse 32, but I have prayed for thee. You see that distinction there? Why wouldn't he use thee and why why are we using that? Well, because there's a purpose. He is saying in verse 31 that the devil wants to have all of y'all. If he was using using the Southern translation, he'd say he wants to have y'all. That's what he would be saying in that word. Whereas in the next one, he's saying, I'm talking about you, Peter. Y'all see the distinction there? What he is saying is that the devil is trying to separate the disciples. He's trying to distinguish them. He's trying to pull them apart. The devil is at work sifting. He's just trying to find a way to wedge in there, to get them separated, find a way to push them apart. He's looking to create create disunity. He's trying to like a like the uh, those those lions and things on the on the African Serengeti on the plains out there. And they're looking for that antelope. They're not going to go to the middle of the pack. They're going to look for that little antelope that's falling away a little bit. It's exactly the way that the devil is doing. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. 
what he was going to do. And, and Jesus is about to tell Peter, he says, listen, you're going to deny me. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm telling you it's going to happen. And you'll read in a few pages that he does deny Jesus. And what the devil, what Jesus is really warning is less about the denial and more about the separation, the disunity. Because what's going to happen is here's Peter denying and it's going to be easy to use that as a wedge to separate the disciples and make them fall apart. Satan knows that a unified body of Christ, the unified church, is too powerful for him to stop. He knows that. He knows that. So what he wants to do, it is his goal to divide and to conquer. That's what he's trying to do. So here we got the devil working his hardest, scheming, bringing strife into the picture, trying to sift or to separate people out. But I am want to make sure you don't leave hearing about how great the devil is because he ain't that great. I want you to know that our Savior is much more powerful. Our Savior is so much better, and he is so much greater. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So there is no scheme. There's no scheme of the devil that will ever stop Jesus from saving us. Uh, go back to verse 21. He says there in verse 21 that there's somebody at the table that's going to betray me. But look what he says in verse 22. And truly the son of man goeth as it was determined. He says he is scheming to stop me. He thinks he's going to destroy me. He thinks he's going to undermine me. But I'm going to the cross. It is predetermined. It is not. There is no question. Nothing can deviate this. It is going to happen. As Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is going to happen. Furthermore, what he essentially is saying here is you might, have, you might have meant this for evil. Whoever it is at the table, he knew, but he didn't tell. But he said, whoever it is at the table, you may have meant this for evil. You may try to be knocking me down, but the Lord God Almighty the Father is working this out for good. This is what Joseph said to his brothers. Remember over in Genesis 50? He says, y'all meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And even if you are, I want y'all to hear what I'm saying to you, not just to Judas, because I don't want you just to hear about Judas. I mean, y'all know Judas, and you know he wasn't a good guy, and he did some bad things, but don't, don't pin all that on Judas. We're not good guys. We've done some bad things. And no matter what kind of scheming that we may have been evil, or the evil that we've been scheming of, that we may be guilty of in the past, our God still offers salvation to us. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So he knows how bad you've been, how bad it gets. He knows the worst of you. Yet he still is offering that you cannot stop him from offering you salvation. Now, on the other hand, he does say, and I stopped reading there in verse 22. He says, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. He says, now listen, if you're going to scheme against me, I'm not going to stop. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to save you. I'm still offering salvation to you. It's still available. But if you're going to reject my free gift, if you're going to work to undermine me so other people can't get this free gift. If that's the way you're going to operate, you're, there's woe, there's condemnation that's due to you. 
As Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Let me make sure I'm very plain with what I'm trying to say here. There is nothing in the universe that will ever stop Jesus from offering his free gift of salvation. He has offered it to the entire world. It is offered to everyone seated here. Anyone that ever hears of my voice, that is offered. However, there is a however. If you choose to reject that or to otherwise try to avoid or try to prevent other people from accepting that, you have put yourself in the crosshairs of condemnation. That's exactly why Judas was where he was. It wasn't because Jesus didn't love him. Jesus loved him. But Jesus said, I'm going to offer salvation. You can try what you want to, but if you're going to try to undermine me, and if you're going to work against me, woe is unto you. Woe to you. He goes on in verse 27. You remember that strife, or rather in verse, uh, excuse me, I apologize, verse 24, where he talks about that strife. But then in verse 27, he says, I know that there's strife going on. I know there's people that are, that are fighting. Who's going to be the greatest? But he says in verse 27, for whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth. So he asked the question. He said, who do you think is the greatest person? Is it the one that's being served at the table? He's seated at a table and he's got somebody bringing him the food or he that is bringing the food? Which one's the greater? Well, and he says, well, he answers his own question. Is it not he that sitteth at, the meat, at, the, at meat? And this is logical, right? If there's somebody that's being served you're the one that they're bringing the food to. You're obviously the, the big dog. I mean, and I mean this even in a restaurant, right? You know, my, my daughter works at a restaurant and you know, she's serving those people. They're the ones paying the bill, right? Now, some of them are stupid. Some of them don't do the right thing. Some of them are mean. I understand all that. But as they say in customer service, the customer's always right, right? Y'all don't have to say amen, but that's the way we operate. That's what Jesus even said. Jesus is essentially saying the customer's right. Doesn't mean, doesn't, doesn't mean they're doing right. It just means they're the ones that are calling the shots. And that's what he's saying here. If you're the one that's serving, you are not the one that's greater. But look at what he says. But I am among you as he that serveth. He says, I'm actually, I know, that, I know what y'all think. I know that you think the guy sitting at the table, bring, people bringing food to him, he's the greatest. But I want you to know I'm the one serving. I'm there bringing out the platters. I'm there cleaning off the table. I'm the one doing the serving here. And what Jesus is doing in saying this is he's modeling the Christian model of leadership. The Christian model of leadership is upside down and from the world's perspective, almost backwards. What this world is expecting is that the big boss, he comes and tells everybody what to do, but here's Jesus who is the Lord of all creation. and He comes and serves. Despite his, his disciples all bickering. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish I had half the patience that Jesus had. Just think about this. You're sitting at a, seated at a table and you're telling them, listen, guys, I'm about to die for you. You're going, my blood is going to be shed for you. And you know what they're sitting over there saying? Now, which one of us can be better than the other one? Hush, y'all. I'm about to die for you. But what is Jesus doing? You know what? Don't worry about that. I want to show you what real leadership looks like. That's what he's doing. He said, I'm going to serve you. I'm patient with you. 
He even predicts that his followers are going to suffer. If you go to verse 28, he says, ye that ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation. He said, which have continued with me in my temptation. He says, you're going to continue to go through temptation or trials. There's more to come. We're going to really face it. It's going to come down. But he says, verse 29, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father hath appointed unto me. He's saying, listen, my followers, it's, it's, it's not about being the greatest. It's about serving other people. And when you're serving other people, you're going, you're going to suffer some trials. We talk about those customers always being right. They're right, but they're abusive sometimes too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what's going to happen. We're going to serve some people in this world as, God's, or as Jesus' followers. And they're not going to appreciate it like they ought to. We're going to serve other Christians and they're not going to appreciate it like they ought to. And he says, listen, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. But I'm also going to promise you eternal blessings. That's what he's talking about in verse 29. We're going to give you something. And what he's saying is I'm not going to give this to you because you're the best. I'm not going to give this to you because you're worthy. I'm not going to give this to you because you're mean and you fight harder for it. That's not why you win it. You get what he gives us in verse 29, the appointing us a kingdom. We get it because he is gracious and he serves. He loves us. And it is not because of what we have done, but because of what he has accomplished. That's why we get those things, those eternal blessings. So strife that we have in our churches, in our families, in our communities, who wants to be the best? Who wants to be the biggest? Who wants to be the brightest? Who wants to get the most attention? Jesus says, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to serve you. I'm still going to help you. I'm still going to be right there beside of you. Then Jesus is talking to Simon again. You remember over in verse 31. He says to Simon, Satan hath desired to have you and all the disciples that he may sift you, the disciples, as wheat. But look at what he says to, to Peter. But I have prayed for thee. Jesus is perpetually pr praying for his church. I want y'all to let, think about what I just said, that Jesus, as we speak, he's praying for North Beaver Baptist Church. I believe he's praying for every church in the entire world. But I also know that, you know, the church is not the buildings. It's the people. He's praying for you. If you're in Jesus, he's praying for you right now. He is praying for you. This is what he does, and he prays for you before the Father. As he says in Romans 8.34, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He is praying for you right now. And what is he praying for? I think we can take our cues from what he says to, to Peter he says, I pray for thee that thy faith fail not, verse 32. He's praying for our faithfulness and our loyalty. He's saying, he, he knows that the devil wants to keep us individually away from the church. You know, that's what he wants to do. The devil wants nothing better. He loves it when you are not part of your local assembly. He loves it when you get mad at somebody and you don't want to talk to him no more. He loves that. That's his, that is so great for the devil. 
He is on board with that. But what Jesus is saying, listen, I know that the, the devil wants to keep you from church. He wants to keep you from God's word. He'll use your sin. He'll use your circumstances. He'll use other people. He'll do all of those things. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to pray that you'll stay faithful through all of that. I'm going to pray for you in that way. He goes on to say there, I prayed for thee that thou, thy faith fell not. And when thou art converted... Now, this word converted, I know we might, I, I, when I read it, I think, well, when you get saved, is that what he's talking about? It's not about being saved. It's about turning. It's about returning, coming back. Repentance is a better word, I think, for us to help us understand that. I think that'd be the word that helps us understand it. So he knew that Peter would deny Jesus, but he didn't want that to be the end of Peter's ministry. He didn't want that to be the time that Peter said, well, I sinned, I'm done. He says, no, 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 I'm going to pray that you'll repent, that you'll be converted, that you'll, you'll come back, that you'll get things right. Sin damages. It damages relationships. It damages friendships. It damages our bodies, our minds. It damages our relationship with God. But as we learned in Sunday school this morning, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Why? If we will confess our sins to him. That's what we must do is repent of our sins and confess them to him and he will make it right. But here he is praying that we will be converted. Continue to read that when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He's also praying for the comfort of the strength of the brothers. Jesus wants Peter back in the fold so that there can be unity with the family of God. So you know what the devil's trying to do? He's trying to break them apart. But Jesus is saying, I want you to come back and I want you to be there with the brothers. I want you to be there with them. I want you to, to be there so you can strengthen them. When he repents of his sin, of denying Christ, when he repents of that, he'll be able to come back and he'll be able to provide comfort and confirmation and stability and strength because he's there. And by the way, if he does that, and then James does that, and John does that, and, and Andrew and all the, all the brothers do that, well, my goodness, what kind of strength and comfort does that, uh, does that uh, create? So when we, endure, when, when we endure and we repent and we come back and we stick with that, and that's what Jesus is praying for, when that happens, God uses us to help other people. God uses us to help other people. See, what Satan wants is your sin or their offense against you. And by the way, I'm making no claims that what, he said, what they did was not wrong. They may have been dead wrong in what they did. What the devil's going to do, right, wrong, indifferent, he's going to find a way to use that to create a wedge. But Jesus is always going to work actively work to keep his church unified and effective. That's what he's doing. He says, I'm going to pray for you. He says, I know that the devil's trying to sift you and separate you, but you can't stop me praying for you. And James says that the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. How much more do you think Jesus's prayer is going to affect? Oh my goodness, you can't stop the power of Jesus. And I am closing as I put my thoughts together on this message, what's not baked into this is, what do you do about all this? That's good information, but what do you do? Let me close with a thought about what you need to do with all this. I want to encourage you to say, 
that your schemes and your pride and your failures are going to do absolutely nothing to negate the love and the power of Jesus Christ. So you can, if you have been one who has in your mind and in your heart fought against what God is telling you and the, the gospel and the truth, if it's been you, you can put down your weapons and you can trust him. He's for you. Some of y'all that maybe have been trying to figure out how can I elbow my way to the front of the line? I want to be in charge. I want to do this. I want to accomplish this. I want to make this happen. You can put down your ambitions and you can follow him. And some of y'all that have maybe you've done something and, and you think, you know, God's never going to use me again. I just don't see how. I'm going to do the best I can, but I don't see how I can possibly. I just want you to know you can put your shame and your sin down. And you can believe in him. If you're guilty of working against God, repent. He will save you. Let me make that very clear. All of us, before we put our faith in Jesus, have been working against him. But when we put our faith in him and we say, no longer, I'm going to work against you. I'm going to trust you. He will save us. That's what he's promised. If you're guilty of trying to be the greatest... Y'all don't have to admit to it. I don't, you don't have to tell me. I'm not your priest. You understand. You talk to God about it, but I just want y'all to know, I know how we people are. I know how Matthew is, and if, if I'm any way at all representative of anybody, there's at least a handful of y'all that think you're better than everybody else and know how to do things better than everybody else. I, I'm not pointing you out. That's between you and God. And if y'all get offended by that, I apologize. But I think that's the truth. That is the truth. And if you're guilty of trying to be the greatest, repent. Because what Jesus is going to do if you'll repent is he'll give you the tools. He'll equip you to serve. He'll put the utensils in your hand. He'll put the tools in your hand to go do what he wants you to do. He will make it possible. If you'll quit trying to be the top of the heap, he will put you where you need to serve. And you will do things that you can't even imagine. And if you're guilty of failing the Lord, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, I don't know there's a person in here who hadn't failed him. If you think you hadn't failed him, let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> Y'all need to get saved. But let me just tell you, if you failed the Lord, repent. He'll restore you. He will make you useful in a way that you couldn't imagine. And I want to urge you I'm going to talk to you as plain as I know how. Don't let the devil get a foothold. Don't let the devil get a foothold at North Beagle Baptist Church. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your life and in your family. He's working at it all the time. But you have a Savior who's more powerful, more loving, more faithful. He is more for you than you ever realized. You have a Savior that is more gracious than you deserve. Why don't you repent, drop your weapons, and come to him and say, Lord, help me.